0: Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar Johnson. Today we're going to do a deep dive on one of the top teams in the Western Conference and the perennial winner of the No One Ever Talks About Us title, the San Antonio Spurs. I am here with Devin Domino. Devin, how are you doing today?
1: Doing well, thank you.
0: All right, let's jump right on in to a offseason overview for the Spurs. Their biggest acquisition this offseason was. Pau Gasol brought in to fill a little bit of the void left by the departure of Tim Duncan. So, how do you think Gasol has been this season for San Antonio?
1: So coming into the season when, you know, everyone heard you know, we get we got Paul, Pau Gasol finally, and I was really excited to get him back uh, 2 years ago when he signed with Chicago. But coming into this season, it wasn't the same feeling. it kind of felt like he's you know obviously past his prime his defensive wares, starting a show. But I think for what it's worth, he's been okay, obviously not the Pau Gasol of the, the Lakers team. you know he's not gonna lead them anywhere he's not he's he's not the force up front that they need, really. I was kind of upset that they paid him sixteen million dollars to sign and start him but i I'm happy to have him on the team it's good It's good to see him playing still. And um, obviously that experience is very much needed on this team.
0: Powell's defensive struggles, I think, were understated a bit while he was in Chicago with the Bulls, simply because he was making all-star teams and racking up block shots. But his ability to cover people in the pick and roll has been an issue for quite a few years now. And I think that's really starting to show itself this year. He somehow is hitting almost 50% of his threes still this late in the season. And granted, he's only taking a little more than one three a game. But the fact that he's been able to hit that shot as effectively as he has, I think has been a huge benefit to the Spurs spacing when he's been on the floor. And that's certainly something that Tim Duncan couldn't do even in his prime, but certainly last year.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's, I mean, that's a role that he fills really well as a guy that can space the floor. And he also gets forgotten about, uh, like, around the perimeter because of, you know, Kawhi and Danny Green. Parker, you know, has been able to hit from there every once in a while, Ginobili. So there's a lot of spacing that goes along there and he's able to take advantage of that when, you know, defenders kind of sag off of him a bit.
0: He's also still a fantastic passer. He's currently fourth on the Spurs in assists per game. And really, I think that's what it boils down to when you're talking about Gasol. On the offensive end, he's a really useful cog, both as someone who can still score pretty effectively and as someone who can move the ball really well within the Spurs system. But on the defensive end, he just can't really cover the modern spread pick and roll anywhere near as well as you would like. So let's move on to a far more under the radar off-season signing, but one that has been enormously helpful to the Spurs. They got Dwayne Dedman for a little under $3 million a year for this season and player option for next season. I don't see any way that Dedman opts into that because he's been fantastic for them this season. He's averaging 17 minutes a game, but six and a half rebounds per game. He's shooting 64% from the floor. And basically what he does is catch lobs on offense and protect the rim on defense. Dedman has been a really solid acquisition for the Spurs as a bench big who can protect the rim, which even though LaMarcus Aldridge, I think, is underrated as a defender, that's not something that he could do anywhere near as effectively as Dedman can. And he also brings some athleticism to a team that at times has really struggled in that particular department.
1: Yeah, I mean, mean, the thing about Deadman is I, um, it's funny to say, but I'm not surprised to see this from him. It's something that just like watching him in Orlando, I just over the last few years kind of got the feel that there was more to him than we were being shown because he wasn't really playing that much and he'd kind of bounced around a couple of teams before Orlando the last few years. So I wasn't too surprised to see the numbers that he's putting up right now, but it's great to see and it's definitely, you know, He's something that the Spurs need, an athletic big is not something that they've had in like 20 years. (laughs) And um, it's going to be interesting to see this offseason actually because with Ginobili coming off of the books, possibly coming off of the books, uh, you would think he might be ready to retire after this season. You know, some of that money might go towards signing Deadman. That's not somebody that you want to just watch walk away. You know, kind of like they did for Boban Marjanovic or any other guys like that in the past. He's somebody that they want to hold on to. He's he's still a relatively young player, and he's kind of in the same timeline as Kawhi. So you kind of you, I would I would think they'd want to keep him around for a little bit because he's shown a lot of promise just over the course of this season.
0: The two other offseason acquisitions that have played a decent chunk of minutes for San Antonio this year are David Lee and Davis Bertans. David Lee has been kind of similar to Pat Gasol in that he's a solid passing big man who's still a pretty good rebounder and is a very useful piece on offense, but not exactly the world's greatest defender. Somehow it hasn't mattered. The Spurs are still number one in defensive rating per basketball reference with playing Gasol and David Lee major minutes. But Lee has been quite effective, sort of filling in the same niche as Gasol. And then Bertans has taken most of his shots from three-point range, and he's just a hair under 40% for the season. He's been really useful just coming off the bench and being a spacing piece effectively. So what are your thoughts on the two of them? both in terms of how they played this regular season and whether or not you think they might be a factor come playoffs
1: so coming into the season david lee kind of fell into the same category as Paul Gasol. you know two years ago i would have been thrilled to have him and then i kind of forgot once they signed him i kind of kept forgetting that they even signed him and now he's one of my favorites to just to watch uh, he's one of the best hustle players in, in the league he does more with you know He's not a, a very athletic guy, but he does more with, with what he has than what some of the most athletic players do in the league. And he also has a tendency to just be in the right place at the right time. And also coming into the playoffs for him, uh, he has a lot of playoff experience. Uh, the Warriors a few years ago, Dallas last year for a little bit. So I, I definitely don't see him you know being sat on the bench very much in class. As far as Berton, it's funny that you mentioned you know that he does take a lot of his shots from the perimeter because when I look at him... Not not exactly build and not even play style, but I do see a lot of like Robert Ory type effect where he's able to just hit the right shots whenever they need them. And I really I would love to see him get more minutes down the stretch. Him and um, Dejounte Murray, who I know is not part of this conversation, but young rookie guys that need more minutes going into the playoffs just so they can get more experience. It's something that Pop doesn't really do too often, but those are two guys that they're going to need in the playoffs. So it'd be nice to see them get more minutes over this ne- the next uh, 20 or 21 games.
0: Let's actually talk about DeJounte Murray really quickly before we move into the season review. He's played very sparingly on the big league team. He's spent some time in Austin with the Toros. When he's been on the floor, his jump shot has looked a lot better than I thought it would coming out of college. He's a little under 41% on the year, granted on a very limited number of attempts from deep, but his ability to hit that shot at all, I think has been a real plus for what he might project to be going forward i've
1: actually seen a lot of him i live in austin so i get to you know just drive down the road and watch those games every once in a while and then obviously the games i've seen him play with san antonio he i mean he's a really really special player and you see flashes of what he might be he has a great floater and he's also a very very good defender um just with his length and his body type if he can learn to dribble the ball below his like shoulder (laughs) he could probably end up being a really good ball handler as well so he's he's a very special player. Uh like I said, I hope he gets more minutes in, you know, the NBA system because he's gonna be very important to them going forward, um, especially with something we'll touch on later with Tony Parker.
0: So let's move on to the season overview, and I wanted to start with something that we sort of covered during the off season portion, but The Spurs' big man rotation, I think, has been a really interesting question mark, I guess, headed into the playoffs. And I say that mainly because Dwayne Dedman has been incredibly good at filling in a defensive and rebounding niche for the Spurs. And given that the Spurs' identity is more defensive at this point in the evolution of the Spurs, do you think Dedman... Should maybe be considered for the starting job at center going into the playoffs. Probably sort of a limited minute role with Gasol getting most of the time there, but maybe Deadman playing against starting units to help protect the rim.
1: So, as it stands now, I mean, he's he started the last few games, especially with Powell being out. And the problem with that is, skill wise, I think that he should be in the starting rotation. He gets in foul trouble way too often, and it ends up being that Powell has to close games anyway. So if you're going to start him, I think it's got to be, like you said, a very limited minutes uh, restriction. That way he's not in foul trouble, because if if he's not there to close games, then what's his defensive presence even worth? You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, Deadman is actually leading the Spurs in fouls per game, despite only playing 17 minutes, which is honestly kind of impressive. You talked about this a little bit earlier, but usually come playoff time, teams sort of narrow their rotation down to eight or nine players, and David Lee is currently eighth on the Spurs in minutes per game. So to me, that would indicate that he will probably play a pretty sizable role during the playoffs. Do you think he's going to get playoff minutes regardless, or do you think he's Going to be sort of knocked out of the rotation come playoff time when the Spurs try to focus more on stopping people than just playing the way they have in the regular season.
1: No, they got to keep them in, especially if you're looking at matchups against like Denver or anybody like that, teams that could really score the ball. You're going to want to keep them in just for the offensive presence. Um, I do think his minutes will probably get taken down a little bit just to make room for Powell being in and, and Deadman and also Lamarcus. But I do think you still have to keep him in because he's, you know, like I said, he's one of the best hustle players I've seen uh, in a long time. He just really, really fights for the ball, especially off of boards. So des- despite, you know, his uh, defensive woes, I think that they should, you know, continue to play him going into the postseason. I don't see why not.
0: All right, let's move from the big man rotation into the wing and guard rotation. And we haven't really talked about this all that much yet, but Tony Parker is really struggling for the second year in a row. And Patty Mills has arguably been better than Parker on both ends of the floor. So I know it's hard to think about sort of easing Parker out of the rotation given how much he's meant to this team over the years. But do you think that's something that Pop should consider heading into the playoffs, or do you think maybe it's worth just having that experience out there during the playoffs when things tend to slow down a little bit
1: more? I think right now, going into the playoffs, you don't really want to do a major shake-up like put Parker on the bench and start Mills. And also Mills brings a lot of needed scoring to the bench, and Parker's struggles are really starting to hurt. Especially like last night, he hit a three and then he was just silent for the rest of the game. He was 0 for 4 from the free throw line and I was pulling my hair out. It was insane. And eventually, you're going to, you know, need, they're going to need to phase that out. At this point, he's really just starting because of circumstance and tradition. There's no other reason that he should be starting. It hurts to say, but he's, one of the worst starting point guards in the league right now, and I would like to see him get more minutes with the second team, just because he plays really well with passing big men, uh, how we saw and David Lee. He could really be effective with those guys, but I don't. I honestly doubt that they start to phase him out before you know the end of the season. I think if, at the earliest, it would be next season that they start to phase that out. And it also depends on the development of Dejounte Murray. Like I said, he's going to be a really special player. If they, you know, do with him what they've done with other guards in the past, so it just depends on how fast he comes along, and if the flashes that he's providing right now are actually flashes of the type of player that he is going to be.
0: The other interesting note here is that Patty Mills will be a free agent this off season, and the Spurs have already lost a very solid backup point guard in Corey Joseph because they were still very much attached to Tony Parker. So I think it'll be interesting to see this off season what R.C. Buford does with Mills entering free agency, whether he sort of gets signed to a big deal to become the successor to Tony Parker, or maybe they let him walk and see what they have in Murray. But moving from the guards sort of more into the wing players, Manu Ginobili... Is shooting 38.6% from the field, and he is shooting almost 40% from three, which does help in that regard. But a lot of Manu's best years and best games came from his ability to sort of drive wildly towards the rack and either get fouled or put up some ridiculous shot. But he's shooting 37% on two pointers this season, and he really isn't getting to the line all that much. He's still an absolute passing wizard that really helps the rest of the bench offense out. But in terms of his personal play, what do you think about what Manu has done so far this season?
1: You know, honestly, at this point with Manu, he could do whatever he wants. I'm totally fine with it. Like They signed him to $14 million and you know, a lot of people were freaking out about that. It was too much money to give him, but like you could have given him 20 million and I'm fine with it just because of what he's done for the franchise. And also what he brings to the second team goes way beyond his scoring. You know, his experience, his passing is still just the same as it was, you know, back in 2005. And also if you, t- if you talk about switching up the start or the 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 bench rotation to put Parker on the bench then and you take Mills and you you start Mills it's like your backcourt scoring goes down immensely at that point because Mono can't score anymore so it's uh as of right now you know I'm, I'm fine with it this is more more than likely his final season I'm able to give Mono a pass on his scoring just because the experience is still there. He's still a very vocal leader for the team and he's still, you know, a great passer, you know, two and a half assists this year. So he's still doing okay as far as I'm concerned. I'm, I'm not too worried about his scoring ability. I wish it was still there. It'd be a great help to the team, but it's not, you know, with with Simmons coming along and, and Danny Green's actually shooting a lot better this year as well, it's not really a cause for concern for me with Moná.
0: So speaking of Jonathan Simmons. Let's actually talk about him really quickly. And as the playoffs are nearing, the Spurs, like every other playoff team, are going to cut down their rotation. And the two players that I sort of see being on the bubble of whether or not they'll get major playoff minutes are Jonathan Simmons and Kyle Anderson. And it would be difficult to find two more different players in the NBA. Simmons is a hyper-athlete who, after his wonderful first game against the Warriors, has been really struggling with his shot, particularly beyond the arc. He's shooting 28% at this point in the season, whereas Anderson is shooting 38.5% from deep, 43% overall, not very many attempts, and he doesn't have anywhere near the explosive athleticism that Simmons does. Anderson might be one of the slowest players in the league. That's why people call him slow-mo. But he can be effective on the offensive end, maybe defensively, not as much. But going into the playoffs, do you think that ninth slash 10th spot sort of on the bubble of the playoff rotation is Simmons's to lose? Or do you think Pop might go with Anderson in some situations and Simmons in others? How do you see that sort of shaking out? Yeah, as
1: of right now, I'd, I'd probably say he'd be the odd man left out, Jonathan Simmons, which is unfortunate because you're right. Like he start he not only that first game against the Warriors, but you know a couple games after that, he started the season pretty well and he's just been really inconsistent from then, which is unfortunate for him to hit that wall because he was actually he's you know a free agent this coming year and you know he could be looking at a serious contract at only like 27 28 years old he could be looking at a serious contract but yeah I think it's just slipping away from him I think it's his to lose and it it seems that they're you know starting to put Kyle Anderson more in different situations and kind of just trying to melt him into the rotation a little bit more so you know with Jonathan Simmons, somebody that inconsistent, you really can't risk having him out on the floor during the playoffs.
0: All right, let's move from the look at the rotations to looking at their season as a whole. And as seems to happen every year with the Spurs, they're not being discussed very much, despite having a forty-eight and thirteen record at this point, second in the West behind the Warriors, second in the NBA overall. They might have a decent shot at cashing the Warriors record-wise, especially since Golden State dropped those two recent games and might struggle a bit down the stretch without Kevin Durant. They do have the weakest strength of schedule so far, according to Basketball Reference, but once again, the Spurs are tearing up the league despite losing their anchor in Tim Duncan during the offseason.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just the they've stood the test of time once again. It's amazing to see, especially with Kawhi. Kawhi's development has shocked even, you know, I've watched every single Spurs game for the last three years at least. More than that, really. Really the last 20 years. But, but watching him over the last three years and his development has been something that I, I didn't even see coming. Everyone I talked to didn't really even see coming. You know, to be averaging 25 points a game. It really shows when you watch him, how they, they talk about Him watching footage of Jordan, and I've never, even Kobe, as good as Kobe was, and as good as, you know, Kobe was at at emulating Jordan's moves, I haven't seen a player that reminds me more of Jordan than Kawhi. Just the way he enforces himself on offense and then gets back and plays defense. I haven't seen a player remind me more of Jordan than Kawhi. He's not, you know, obviously not as great as Jordan, but just the mentality and, you know, a lot of the same offensive moves, it's really, really great to see
0: one thing that I noted that I think has been a huge part of the Spurs success this year, they've only lost two games in a row twice this year, and they haven't lost more than two in a row at any point. And I think that really does speak to the Spurs culture in that they don't get into a rut and just have a poor stretch of basketball. Unlike pretty much every other team in the league, you know, They bounce back well from losses and they don't sort of let themselves get down. And that really is huge for a team that will need to make sure that they don't lose more than two games in a row come playoff time. So let's talk about Danny Green, who really has had somewhat of a revival this season after having a really poor shooting year. Last year, he's back up to 39 percent from deep he's second on the team in attempts per game behind Kawhi Leonard and he's back to playing that elite level of defense that really made him such a force during their finals runs earlier in the decade
1: yeah I mean he's not defensively he I would say he's he's back to where he was a year or two ago offensively he's not quite there but, uh, apparently he had LASIK surgery in the offseason, and it's like really been helping because he's been hitting from three way more consistent than he, he was last year. And I remember last year just thinking, you know, it's probably time to move on from him. Um, especially with Jonathan Simmons kind of coming around a little bit, but he, he looks great. And, um, yeah, he looks really great. He's shooting really great from the three point and also just his field goal percentage in general. He's been really, really a bright spot for their offense.
0: All right, let's move on to talking about the most recent Spurs article on Hashtag Basketball. And this was written by our colleague, Yegor Karyaguni. And the question was, should the Spurs work the trade deadline? We're a little bit past the trade deadline at this point. But one really interesting idea that Yegor raised in the article was potentially trading for Nerland's Noel. And I think they wouldn't have been as motivated to make that sort of move after they added Dwayne Dedman. But I thought the concept was interesting of trying to add a more athletic, more defensively oriented big man, given that Pau Gasol and David Lee get major minutes. And while LaMarcus Aldridge is a really solid defender overall he's not exactly the shot blocking rim protector extraordinaire so what were your thoughts on that article
1: well it was a great article it's just that the thing about the spurs is they don't make trade deadline deals like ever so i kind of like i kind of thought this might be the year that they might put somebody out just to like catch a feeler on the market and see, especially with the way things were, you know, the Marcus Cousins getting traded away for nothing. Noel, no, Noel got traded away for basically not like they waived Andrew Bogut and Justin Anderson, you know. But so, but they're not the team that really makes those, especially big name deadline deals. So I wasn't too surprised that they didn't make a move, but that. Sometime in the future, that would be something that they would need to look at. Obviously, Deadman is not is not the end-all, be-all. He's, he's not the permanent answer for them at that position. So maybe sometime in the offseason, you will see them make a, make a move towards that um, position. But they're just not a team that is very active at the trade deadline, either.
0: The Spurs usually only deal from a position of strength, and it's very rare that a contending team is in a position of strength during the trade deadline. And also, I apologize to Yegor, whose name I almost certainly butchered when I went through that the first time. But let's move on to talking about the central figure for the Spurs, or rather the central figure for the Spurs that is not Greg Popovich, and that is Kawhi Leonard. He has once again increased his scoring average. He's now up to 26 points a game he's still an elite defender who won defensive player of the year the last two years in a row his three-point shooting is a little bit down from last year's ridiculous 44 percent from deep but he's still at 38 percent on three-pointers he's taking a few more than he took last year but the biggest improvement in his game by far has been that he is just getting to the line more than he ever has. And that was something that he reportedly worked on during the offseason. And it's certainly been incredibly successful. He went from 4.6 free throw attempts per game last year to 7.5 this year. And that really has represented a decent chunk of his jump in scoring, with the rest of it being his effectiveness sort of in the mid-range game that I think becomes a lot more important in the playoffs, not because those are particularly efficient shots, but just because teams are trying so much harder on defense that it becomes increasingly more and more difficult to find those great looks behind the arc or good looks on players cutting to the rim and getting easy layups. So what are your thoughts on Kawhi's offensive evolution?
1: Yeah, I mean, you look at the numbers and he's right on the cusp of a 50 40 90 season which in itself is impressive but then you look at how much the attempts have grown since last year then it makes it even more impressive you know you mentioned the free throw attempts is basically three more free throw attempts per game compared to last year but it's not like he's dropped off you know a significant amount he's getting to the line and he's making them at the line and it's why you know and night in and night out, he's putting up these thirty-point games, like very, very quiet thirty-point games, and you know, eight rebounds and five steals, and just crazy stat lines that's that aren't really getting the recognition that they deserve. Which is fine, you know. There's guys around the league that are doing, you know, the same thing, if not more, at a very exciting pace. But it's it's like I mentioned before, it's just incredible to see, and it's I'm still, I, it's still a very shocking thing to see how far he's uh he's come just in the last like two years even after winning finals MVP, just in the last two years to see how far he's come has been really great.
0: On the defensive end, he's still Kawhi Leonard and as a Kings fan, I will never forget the moment earlier in the year where Kawhi Leonard just decided that Ben McElhore was not gonna get to keep the ball and he just stripped it from him on a couple of consecutive possessions. Like it was nothing.
1: Didn't he have like, like a one hand steal in that game too? I think he like like literally like like a like a football safety just swatted it out of the air and went with one hand and turned it
0: into offense. Kawhi's ability to just rip the ball from professional players like he was ripping the ball from someone during a playground pickup game is honestly one of the more entertaining things about watching the modern day Spurs. And something that really irritates me is that people have been talking this season about how the Spurs' defensive rating is actually worse with Kawhi Leonard on the floor than off the floor. And my counter-argument to that is in the starting lineup, he has to play with Tony Parker and Pau Gasol, who might be two of the worst defenders in a starting lineup for a playoff team. Yet the Spurs still, again, have the number one defensive rating in the league, even though they lost Tim Duncan, who was still an incredible defender even last season, and they've replaced him with Pau Gasol, yet somehow Kawhi and LaMarcus, with some help from Dwayne Dedman and some other guys off the bench, and obviously Danny Green, have managed to hold this defense together. So I think it's upsetting that people are holding... That drop in defensive rating against Kawhi because it's not his fault. It's the guys that he has to spend most of the game playing with. Who, despite their offensive, well, brilliance for Gasol, mediocrity, I guess, from Tony Parker. The fact that that defense is in the top in the top five with those guys in the starting lineup is remarkable. Let alone number one overall.
1: And I will say, like he has dropped defensively this year. It's not that he's a worse defensive player, but it's that the Spurs are relying on him to score 25, 26, 30 points a game on the offensive end compared to last year's career it was his career high average of 21 points a game. So when you have that much of an impact offensively, you're going to take a couple defensive plays back. And not to say he's taking them off But he's obviously being relied more on the offensive end, and it shows through whenever you look at his defensive stats, which is fine, because they're still winning games.
0: So I want to preface this by saying that I think I would still vote for James Harden as the MVP if I got an MVP vote, but I think it's hard to ignore Kawhi Leonard's case for MVP at this point, and it's never going to get discussed because of Russell Westbrook and James Harden, and also the fact that he plays for the Spurs, but they have a better record than anyone in the league besides the Warriors, and they may surpass the Warriors for the best record in the league if Golden State continues to play the way they have with Kevin Durant out. And he's also doing it without another All-Star on his team. And granted, that's also true for Harden and Russell Westbrook. and. Marcus Aldridge is better than anyone that either Harden or Westbrook has on their team. But at the end of the day, the MVP hasn't gone to a player that didn't lead their team to a top two seed in the conference since Carl Malone in 1999. Since Carl Malone won that MVP and that year the Jazz were actually tied for first, and they only ended up being the third seed due to a three-way tiebreaker at the top. But, I mean, at the end of the day, the MVP very rarely goes to a player who, you know, didn't lead their team to a top two seed in the conference, and Kawhi's going to do that, and he's going to do it with less help than LeBron has had, and he's going to end up with a better record than LeBron is going to have. And I guess the only question there is whether you value the ridiculous stat lines of Harden and Westbrook more than the all-around play and winning that Kawhi has led the Spurs to. Also, it was actually the...
1: People are going to hate me for this, but I got to... Go with Westbrook for MVP. Just be like, just because, like you said, if you take Kawhi off of the Spurs, it's likely there's still a playoff team. It's very likely. And Lamarcus Aldridge, Tyrus solid, Green, Parker. Whenever he's playing well, it's likely there's still a playoff team in the West. If you take off, you know, Westbrook off of the Thunder, that's the that's the one and two pick in the draft. As you right there, what he's doing. Can't be. Um, it just can't be overstated or at all. It's something that we, you know, for years and years and decades and decades, that nobody will ever replicate. That for Westbrook to do it in this day and age in this NBA is absolutely incredible. Um, I wish I could give Kawhi the MVP. Like I said before, any other year it would be his award, but if I had a vote, it would go Westbrook.
0: I think the Westbrook Harden debate might. Boil down to just how high the Thunder can climb in the playoff seedings. I just don't think Russell will win the MVP, whether he deserves it or not is a different question, but I don't think he's likely to win the MVP if the Thunder end up being the seventh seed. If they manage to climb up to the fourth seed, and they're only three games out of that at the moment, and I thought they made a really... Really great move at the trade deadline to add Taj Gibson and Doug McDermott. If Westbrook can get them into that four seed, I think he will and should win MVP. But if not, I think the fact that Harden has got the Rockets to the third seed in the West might be enough to sway the case in his favor because they might be the third seed, but they have two historically great teams above them, and they might be the third seed in the West, but at the moment they have the third best record in the NBA overall, and I think that would play a huge role in the voting process.
1: Let me ask this, because not not to underrate what Hart is doing, what he's doing is great too, but at this point, what the thing that gets me is like, what does it matter if he, he's in the playoffs and he averaged a triple-double? It's not his fault that the team is really bad. I mean, he has no scorers around him at all. And so I can't fault him for this one of the top five best players in the league leaving him. You know, it it's you're basically saying, okay, well, Durant left, so now you can't win this award. You only have the stat line because Durant left. When actually, he, you know, he's been capable of doing this all along. It's just that now he's finally have he's having the opportunities to do it. And everyone's, you know, saying, well, you know, your team isn't that great, so you shouldn't get this award. It's like, no, he's doing everything he can just to make sure they're, they are that 7th seed or eight seed or 6th seed. So it's funny to me whenever, you know, he's getting discounted for what he doesn't have, but not getting awarded for what he's doing, which is something that we never thought would see happen again.
0: I think it has a lot in common with the 2006 MVP race where Kobe led an absolutely awful Lakers team to succeed in the playoffs, but the MVP went to Steve Nash because he led that historic Suns offense. And I think it's a lot closer between Harden and Westbrook this year than Kobe and Nash. I think Kobe just had a better year than Nash. But I think it's a similar argument in that at the end of the day, the historical record shows that the MVP voters take being at the top of your conference as a huge consideration in the MVP debate, even when you have someone like Westbrook leading a team that would probably be in the bottom half of the lottery without him. The other thing to note with the Kawhi MVP Case, let's just sort of loop back to that before we move on. He plays a lot better defense than either Harden or Westbrook. And you talked about this a little bit earlier with how his defense has fallen off a little bit because he has to carry a bigger offensive burden. Harden and Westbrook have the two biggest offensive burdens in the league. They might have the two biggest offensive burdens of anybody in the last 10 years, but neither of them are even average defenders. And when you have someone who's such an elite defender like Kawhi, who is leading a Spurs team that may end up with the number one seed, I think it will be hard to ignore his case come MVP time. I think the only reason his case probably will be ignored is because he plays on the Spurs, and people might just give too much credit to Greg Popovich and RC Buford not to underrate the wonderful job that they've done, but that... Environment does sort of tend to lead to the best players on the spurs maybe not getting the consideration that they should for the individual awards which again reminds me of the absolute travesty that Tim Doug had never won defensive player of the year
1: well it's like the I mean not to like continue harping on this but the MVP award is it's it's a media award obviously so the most you know the player that's in the media the most that's the player that most likely is going to win Harden and Westbrook are you know they've had they have two of the best like commercials right now <laughs> Which is actually when you think about it, that's a factor. The more you see these guys' faces and the more you see the highlights, those the those are the guys that are gonna get the votes. So it's it, I mean, it, i hate saying it because it feels like, Oh, woe is me, they're playing San Antonio, so they you know, they're always overlooked and that's the the time honored argument for Spurs fans, but it's just like, no, that is the case. That's that's the reason that he's that he's gonna get looked over for this MVP race.
0: It doesn't help that a lot of the people that vote in the MVP discussion are local reporters and or broadcasters who maybe they only see these guys a couple of times a year when they come to play the team that they're covering, and maybe they see a couple of additional games beyond that. But James Harden and Russell Westbrook are a lot flashier than Kawhi Leonard, and when you only see these guys a couple of times a year, that's going to stand out. All right, let's move on to the best and worst games for the Spurs this season. And I wanted to start with the obvious choice, which is their opening night obliteration of the Golden State Warriors. I mean, coming into that game, there were people thinking that the Warriors might end up going better than 73 and 9 because they went 73 and 9 and traded Harrison Barnes and Andrew Bogut for Kevin Durant but the Spurs just blew him out of the building opening night never struggled ended up winning 129 to 100 in what the Warriors said was a wake-up call but on the Spurs end was just a dominating performance that really showed what they could be this season
1: yeah I mean as time's gone on with that game I kind of I've kinda of given it more slack when it, it first ended it was like, Wow, they just you know they just beat this incredible team that has like four all stars and like two of the greatest players in the league right now. Whatever, whatever. But as time has gone on, you've seen the faults in the Warriors and it's kinda of not too it's not too surprising that they lost that game. It is surprising that they lost that bad. But I, I would say their best game of the season, uh, is that Cleveland game in January, the overtime game. I first of all I love matchups against Cleveland ever since the Ky- Kyrie's 57 point game. So anytime the Spurs play Cleveland it's like one of my favorite games of the year. It's great to see, you know, whenever they play Cleveland and uh, that that overtime game just going on to the home court in Cleveland uh is really really that that's that's what it's about right there. That that game is I think the game of the year so far for them.
0: And if you want to talk about Y Leonard's MVP case, you have to bring up this game where he scored 41 points career high for him. He did it efficiently, 50% from the floor, perfect from the line, and LeBron still had a fantastic game. Kawhi wasn't able to shut him down completely, but then again, no one is really able to shut LeBron down completely, especially in a big game that he wants to win like this one. But I thought LaMarcus Aldridge was huge for them in this game. He was decently efficient on offense, 7 of 14 from the field. He did only shoot 50% from the line, which was concerning, but he got 12 rebounds and 6 assists, and he held Kevin Love to just an awful night from the floor, 4 of 15 overall, 3 of 11 from deep, and I think that really was the margin of the game in that the Spurs won that power forward matchup.
1: Mhm. Yeah. Just going into, you know, Cleveland's arena on their home floor and taking in overtime. That was because that was a game that they fought. the Warriors game, I think after the second half they didn't really fight for that win. It was kind of just like it was done. But that uh that Cleveland game, that was that was a fight. That was good.
0: So, we talked about a couple of their best games. So, before we wrap up, let's just look at some of their weaker performances, shall we say, from this season. And the one that I wanted to discuss first was their loss to the Suns in Mexico City. And when you're the Spurs, you really just shouldn't be losing games to the Suns. (laughs) Like, just in general, but especially this year, when the Suns are in a heated battle with the Lakers for bottom seed in the West. And Devin Booker put up 39 points in this game. And Devin Booker is a really good scorer, but allowing anyone to score 39 points on you is concerning at best. Kawhi Leonard had a great game, 38 points, 60% from the field, 12-14 from the line. But the rest of the team really struggled on the offensive end. Manu Ginobili had 16 points, was second on the team. The Marcus Aldridge had 13 points, but on 14 shots. Tony Parker was decently efficient with his 14 points, and then no one else on the team scored more than six.
1: Right, yeah. That game, I mean, that game was bad, but I can't, like that was the mexico city game so i can't really fault them too much for that it's like with like, like the travel thing but the spurs are also going to go into this thing where like they were playing really poor defense and relying too much on Kawhi and just like throwing him in the game at like the last 5 or 6 minutes and you're like here save us from losing to this team that we shouldn't lose to because, like, they lost, like, some weird games early on in the season around a time. Like, that Orlando Magic game, I would say that's the worst one. That, like, when they scored 83 points, like, that's terrible.
0: Speaking of that Orlando Magic game, that's actually next on our list of worst games of the season. Scoring 83 points against the Magic is really, really disturbing. And this game, Kawhi Leonard actually wasn't a destructive force on offense which it's remarkable for that to be the anomaly given where he started his career but that's where we are at this point he shot 37.5 percent from the floor he did somehow end up with 21 points on 16 shots and that's mainly he's been getting to the line but one of four from deep didn't really contribute outside of scoring no assists two rebounds a couple of steals but also a couple of turnovers Marcus Aldridge had a pretty solid game, 16 points, 12 shots, 6 rebounds, not too bad.
1: I mean, this game is a testament to, like, going back to what we're talking about, Tony Parker, it's like, it's not even that he's bad or mediocre, it's that he's completely ineffective, just not even a blip on the radar at some points. And, like, to to kind of even fast forward to, or, I mean, we wanted to, to last night, like, last night they were on pace to have their worst game of the year against minnesota i mean and it fell on tony parker like he he hit that three in the first quarter and then was just quiet for the rest of the game the first quarter they shot 40 percent from the field and scored 14 points in the first quarter and like to put that in perspective they scored 14 points in a five minute overtime so like it kind of falls in and into a pattern with like their bad games really rest on like missing the effectiveness of Tony Parker, Pagasol, Danny Green, and those guys.
0: Marcus Aldridge did have a decent game offensively, but he also allowed Serge Ibaka to shoot 7 for 11, 2-4 from deep, get 7 rebounds. The Spurs overall in this game shot 36.8% from the field, which just won't get it done. They also shot 5 of 20 on 3-pointers. It was just a miserable game for them against the kind of team that they should not be having miserable games against. And it was also in San Antonio. It wasn't like it was some road game that they didn't quite get up for. They were at home, and they still just got shut down by a Magic team that has struggled on both ends this season, but is currently 20th in the league in defensive rating.
1: I will say the, Lamarcus kind of struggles with Ibaka. It's weird. Like, because he had the same problem last year in that Thunder series where like he would just like base him out too much and then Ibaka would get like an open three. So he's, it, it, I don't know why, but he seems to struggle with him.
0: All right. Anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up here? That's it. Thanks to Devin for coming on the podcast. You can follow him on Twitter at Devin Domino 11. D e v i n d o m i n o O M I N O eleven. You can follow me on Twitter at NBA underscore Johnson. You can follow the hashtag basketball website on Twitter at hash basketball. You can also check out both Devin and my writing on the hashtag basketball website, hashtag basketball.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a rating and or a review on iTunes or whatever other podcast player you might be listening to this podcast on. Please also feel free to reach out to me on Twitter with any comments, whether positive or negative. I'd love to hear from all of you, and thanks so much for listening.